Welcome to Navara Live. I am once again Michael Walker, and today I'm joined by James Meadway. James, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Lovely to see you again, Michael. Lovely to see you. I'm trying to match your beard, but it could take me a few more years, I think, um, but working on it. Um, we have some big stories tonight. Later on, I'll be discussing with James Labour's policy prospectus in government. The Financial Times have been running a series on that. And we'll also talk about the Jamie Driscoll row. And we've been covering that all week. And um, a story we probably don't cover enough, actually, a, a big ground-shaking, world-changing story, um, the potential existence of UFOs. Um, are the American government hiding aliens from the rest of us? Uh, we, will dis- we will discuss that. We will get to the bottom of it, let's say. First of all, though, the COVID inquiry. Just two years ago, the government launched an independent inquiry into its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The chair of the inquiry, Heather Hallett, was promised she would have access to all the materials relevant to the brief. But now the government is taking its own inquiry to court. That's to prevent it from getting hold of the unredacted WhatsApp messages, notebooks and diaries of Boris Johnson. It's not a great look for Sunak's government and it gets worse for them. That's because Johnson himself has said he actually wants to hand over his messages and notebooks and has said he's willing to give them directly to the inquiry. He's also offered to give the inquiry his old phone, which has been switched off since April 2021 due to a security breach. That security breach um, was him leaving his number online. It's Sunak's government, though, that's stopping him doing so. So what is Rishi Sunak hiding? We don't know yet, but Lady Hallett, who is chairing the COVID inquiry, doesn't sound impressed. She's speaking here to the lawyer representing the government. So the Cabinet Office is in possession of Mr Johnson's notebooks. But because of the point that's going to judicial review, even though Mr Johnson himself says he would reveal them to the inquiry without redaction... Cabinet Office is going to apply redactions to somebody else's material. Have my, I got that right? My lady, the, 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 the position is that the Cabinet Office is working out its position. <laughs> you should never have to say that. Especially like it's te- the position is the Cabinet Office is working out its position. I've had a while to prepare for this, by the way. Um, so, yeah, it's not not ideal. I feel kind of sorry for that guy standing up and, and giving that as the position. Um, the stories we are covering tonight are, we haven't quite yet discovered what we're going to be covering on Tisky Sour or Navarra Live, whatever we're called now. Um, according to the Cabinet Office, it should be able to decide what is and isn't relevant to the inquiry. But Lady Hallett thinks it should be up to the inquiry itself to make that call. So the government want to say, we'll give you what we think is relevant. The inquiry says, we'll give it, give us all of it and we'll decide what's relevant. Um, legal experts, most of them who's, who have spoken to the press, um, seem to agree that the government has almost no chance of winning this case. And even government ministers seem to have little faith. This was George Freeman on last week's Question Time. The reason we've challenged this is that everything relating to COVID, we've said should be handed over. But these, it's a Section 2021 order, which says everything. And we're just testing the case about, should that include everything, including non-COVID? Should private discussions about people's childcare arrangements, their family, um, their their love's life, should all of this be handed over? So it's a point of law. It'll be resolved, I think, pretty quickly. There'll be a judicial review and the court will decide. But that's the reason for it. We're actively cooperating. The judge who's on the inquiry set up by the government who appointed this judge is saying it's up to her 
mm -hmm. to decide what's relevant. And for example, if it shows that ministers were spending a lot of time talking about other things when perhaps they should have been spending more time talking about COVID, that is relevant to her. Yes, uh, it's now subjudice and I can't really comment on it. But oh, I come would, on, George. Do I you agree with no, the no, government? You agree with the government? Your question. I have to be careful, but I would tell you that I would be very surprised if a court doesn't take that view. So if even government ministers think they're going to lose the case, um, what's the point of pushing ahead with it in the first place? Now, that's a question Sky's Kay Burley asked Health Secretary Steve Barclay. Talk to me about the COVID inquiry. Why would the government take its own inquiry to court in a case that it's almost certainly going to lose? Uh, well, the Cabinet Office is, is leading on that and wants to clarify the legal position uh, in terms of what uh, messages uh, are disclosed. Obviously, there are uh, issues in terms of people's sort of privacy and, and their wider rights in terms of what message may be sent. But anything to do with the inquiry, I think there's a recognition we hugely value. Inquiry, as you say, we have set up Why as take a it government. To court, then? We have set up the inquiry. We massively value uh, Why its take work. It to court, then? Well, the Cabinet Office wants to just clarify uh, the legal position about what is in Don't you scope. trust the chair to do that? Well, of course we trust it. But well, it's why a take it to court, well, then? The Cabinet Office wants to just clarify the legal position around the messages and what is and is not uh, in scope. Uh, but the, the work of the inquiry is massively important. That's why uh, we set it up and, and people do are very much looking them? forward to it. Of course we, so we trust why uh, take we, it to we have a fantastic okay, judiciary, uh, world-leading judiciary uh, Seems in this like a country, waste but it's, it's perfectly waste reasonable. Waste of taxpayers' money. No, I think the, the Common Office wants to just clarify uh, the legal scope in terms of what it is. It's a, an innovative area uh, to test, and, and, and that's something the Common Office wants to clarify. The clash between the government and the inquiry also came up in Prime Minister's questions today. Um, Rishi Sunak was out of the country, so Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden and Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner were stepping in. They set up the inquiry to get to the truth, then blocked that inquiry from getting the information that it asked for, and now they're taking it to court. I know he considers himself a man of the people, so using his vast knowledge of working-class Britain, does he think working people will thank him for spending hundreds of thousands of pounds of their money on loophole lawyers just so that the government can obstruct the COVID inquiry? Yeah. the Prime Minister. Well, we will provide the inquiry with each and every document related to COVID, including all internal discussions in any form as requested, while crucially protecting what is wholly and unambiguously irrelevant. Because essentially, the Right Honourable Lady is calling for years' worth of documents and messages between named individuals to be in scope. And that, Mr Speaker, could cover anything from civil servants' medical conditions to intimate details about their families. But I really will say to the Right Honourable Lady, I find it extraordinary that she should lecture us on value for money for the taxpayer. When I understand she has now purchased two pairs of noise-cancelling headphones on expenses. No, I will be fair. I will be fair to the right honourable lady. If I had to attend shadow cabinet meetings, I think I'd want to tune them out too. Mr. Speaker, all we're asking for is what the COVID inquiry has asked for. And across the world, COVID inquiries are well underway. While his government, high 
provides information and shells out public money on legal bills for the Oxbridge one, the former Prime Minister is now demanding another million to pay for his new lawyers. Now, I know the honourable gentleman and his former boss has fallen out and maybe he wants to patch things up, but can he seriously say this is a good use of taxpayers' money? Yes. Deputy Prime Minister. I, if we want to talk about uh, relationships between, between different people, I don't think we need to search her WhatsApp messages to know that there's no communication between her and the leader of her party. The government there hardly gave the impression they're taking this all particularly seriously. And with the row between it and the inquiry dominating the headlines, it can be easy to forget that the COVID inquiry isn't just about what ministers were getting up to. It's also about the bereaved. Representing those who lost family members to COVID in Northern Ireland, Brenda Campbell had some harsh words for the Cabinet Office at yesterday's hearing. It is, um, we contend, unfortunate. Some of those whom I represent might say offensive that the bereaved families who look to this inquiry to provide answers see the Cabinet Office not working constructively with the inquiry in the application of your ruling and instead persisting to rally against it. The Cabinet Office argument that you were asking too much of them really does ring hollow to those whose loved ones paid the ultimate price. And it's particularly unfortunate, as has just been observed by my learned friend, Miss Mirage, that notwithstanding that this issue has been a live one for as many as six months and in real terms for a great deal longer than that because the requests that you have made were obviously always going to be made, it's unfortunate that the Cabinet Office has allowed or enabled a situation wherein this dispute has overshadowed the work towards the inquiry opening next week and is in fact now to be resolved by the Administrative Court right in the middle of those Module 1 hearings. The damage that has already been done to public confidence is written large across media outlets. But the toll that it is taking on the Northern Irish bereaved, largely hidden behind closed doors and expressed over kitchen tables from which loved ones are absent, is really immeasurable. James, what's your analysis of what's going on? It seems like a funny battle for the Sunak government to pick. They're taking their own inquiry to court on a case they think they're going to lose to keep secret the texts of an ex-Prime Minister who actually wants to show the inquiry his texts? I mean, what's, how should we understand this? It's extremely um, weird behaviour, really. The probably, I mean, we can all kind of speculate, and that's what we're left to do. And perhaps part of the intention with the government is to, as the barrister hinted at, um, to sort of muddy the waters and throw confusion uh, around the entire inquiry. And then perhaps also, I think, to potentially delay some parts of its proceedings. Bear in mind, there's likely to be a general election uh, next year, most likely to be in October. It's kind of the government gets to choose this up until uh, early January 2025. What they don't want is evidence before that general election of senior cabinet ministers clearly not doing their jobs properly uh, with regards to COVID. The most obvious um, person who might be entangled in this here, and there was speculation about it over the weekend and, and beyond, is Rishi Sunak, who has uh, Chancellor the Exchequer, put his personal stamp, and he was all over it, uh, the help, all over the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which cost you know, £500 million pounds, 
Um, there was evidence very shortly afterwards from Warwick University that increased COVID infections by up to about 12%. Uh, it's been condemned over the last week by public health experts as you know, just deeply irresponsible. And of course, there may well be some uh, WhatsApp material or other material there that could come out ahead of a general election and be deeply embarrassing to the Prime Minister, now the Prime Minister, then the Chancellor. So you can speculate a bit about it, but that's that's kind of, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good to say, let's have an inquiry and then do everything possible to kind of muddy the waters and delay the thing and make it very obvious, as you said, that they're not really taking this very seriously. And all the reporting at the time, so as well as eat out to help out, it was Rishi Sunak who was reported to be you know, very, very anti the second lockdown. So apparently it was him, this was reported in the, the Sunday Times, I think apparently it was him who was sort of bringing um, Carl Hennigan and people who were very much in favour of, you know, let's take it on the chin, quick herd immunity um, in September of 2020 and sort of egging on Boris Johnson to ignore um, the other senior scientific advisors. Um, I have to say, I have some mixed feelings about this, James, this this issue of WhatsApp messages, because I do feel like, Obviously, transparency is good, but at the same time, I wouldn't want my WhatsApp messages leaked. And that's not because I think I've made any like decisions or actions which are like particularly immoral, but because I use WhatsApp to talk in a very sort of like flippant way. Sometimes you're being sarcastic, ironic, and there are lots of things that I think could be taken out of context. And if I knew that mm-hmm. um, my, my WhatsApps would be made public or could be made public at any point, I'd be a lot less candid with my colleagues, especially. And I think candidness can actually be quite useful. So if everyone is sort of talking in this way of sort of like hushed tones, anything I text might be heard. And then you end up with people. I mean, I was listening to a, the, the Financial Times podcast where the journalist was Lucy Fisher, I think, was saying that all the ministers she now texts just have automatic delete on their WhatsApp messages. So they just disappear after a few hours. It doesn't seem like this is necessarily a sort of sensible way to do government. Anything which is 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 retrievable shall be retrieved and the only way for it to not be retrieved is for you to have automatic message deletes or for you to say it all in person in the back room of a pub mm-hmm. like is this is this a sensible way of doing government well i mean not especially look the the rules we have about how government is supposed to operate and i think you're right by the way there, there is when the tories say oh ministers have to be able to talk to their their officials you know candidly and without a fear of things being leaked uh, that's actually not a bad point to make like you should be able to have those sorts of discussions the problem we've got is that those discussions once upon a time some conclusions from them might be minuted officially written down somewhere it'll be placed on the record and it wouldn't contain loads of sort of private information in the same way that discussion taking place in whatsapp which is a written record uh will contain private information and and exactly as you say a kind of casual backwards and forwards conversational uh, style in it so we so the rules of like how government operates how inquiries operate haven't really caught up with how we actually use uh, these technologies today and i think you know there's a there's a case that the government can make around this the trouble is that if they called the independent inquiry they have to say this inquiry is independent and we have faith in the capacity of the inquiry to determine what is necessary for its inquiry to take place. So that means it has to determine what is relevant to its own proceedings, not have the government say these things are not relevant to your proceedings because then suddenly it's not independent. If you didn't want an independent inquiry, set up something different. But if having called the thing, you're going to have to go along with how that has to operate and any restriction uh, from the government saying, we're deciding what goes into this, not you, the judge, the the panel, 
um, that ruins the whole point of it being independent. Because, of course, everybody's going to go, well, sure, all right, maybe there's some private messages in there, family life, whatever it might be. But also maybe there's a whole load of stuff that just makes X, Y, or Z cabinet minister look a bit iffy. So you know, nobody can trust the thing once you have uh, the government determining what the inquiry can actually look at. I'm going to be a bit controversial here, James, because I like doing that when you're on the show. Um, there is kind of a point that Dominic Cummings made uh, a while ago on this sort of stuff. I don't know if he's commented particularly on this on this issue of these WhatsApp messages, but where he's sort of saying what the political class in this country is is okay at doing, and the media class and everyone is holding people accountable in a way. Obviously, there are there are limits to that, and there are lots of failings to that. But sort of, you publish this, you sign this document, you make sure the the the, the T's are crosses crossing the I's are, are dotted, so you can justify what you've done. It's all about accountability. And not much of it is about results. Not much of it is about output. So we can have all of these inquiries, all of these scandals where it's about you need to publish your messages, da, 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 da. and that takes up 80% of the time. And we spend much less time saying, well, were you actually any good at doing what you've, uh, uh, the problems you set out to solve? Have you solved them? Now, obviously, the, the classic example here would be the Chinese Communist Party at one extreme. So they have what's called, or I mean, it, it can be argued they have what's called output legitimacy. So there's very little accountability, no transparency. But for many people, they get the job done and therefore they have, you know, appeal because of that. Do you think there is a sense where in a country like the UK, we talk endlessly about accountability and not enough about results? As often with Dominic Cummings, there's, there's a solid element of truth to, to what he's saying there. And there is something critical about getting to a situation where, yes, we do go round and round and round. And, and often the discussion, look, as we're finding with this inquiry, it's not actually uh, about the you know the really serious bit, which is that 227,000 people have died of COVID in this country, and, and still counting, by the way. Uh, and we need to work out what went wrong, because this looks, you know, lots of it looks worse than what other countries have done. So, of course, there's a need to find some really important things there to work out what happened so you don't end up doing something like this again. Uh, and instead, we're sort of messing around with like, you know, whether Boris Johnson releases his WhatsApp messages, whether there's a judicial review. So, of course, there's, there's, there's an element where when Dominic Cummings says we're not focusing on the serious things enough, he's kind of right, because we've already been distracted by the government into messing around with the conditions under which the inquiry should take place, rather than actually getting into the, the important part of it. But I think the crucial thing here is not so much the fact that you're asking for accountability. Uh, and if we have or try to have a broadly democratic system, you, know, you have elections, you have ideally a kind of free press, you have some space that people can discuss uh, different aspects of policy and items of controversy and this sort of thing. If you have all this, you need some accountability process. You need to have the public engaged. You need to have that civil society, civic society engagement with the process of government. The difficulty is then going, well, what do we do once we've had the inquiry? Because I can probably rattle through some of the inquiries that have taken place in various sort of... <laughs> Can I say fuck-ups? I think I can. So as they've taken place in this country over a number of years, what is the outcome from it? What is the change in policy? What is the thing that you actually get to from the inquiry? That, I think, is where we may well be going wrong, rather than saying, okay, we want accountability, we want transparency, we want to know what government is doing, we want people to be engaged with what government is doing on some level. Next story. With Labour miles ahead in the polls, the Financial Times are running a series on what a Starmer government might look like. And they suggest it's more radical than we might expect. So they've titled their, their first long read, The Starmer Project, Labour's Surprisingly Bold Economic Agenda. And they say for all its orthodox rhetoric, the party's plans for an interventionist industrial policy would represent a striking shift. 
Now, the main focus of the article is Labour's plan to borrow £28 billion a year to fund a green transition. Um, on that, they write, Starmer's team says the first 100 days of a Labour government would be about the economy, 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 with the Green Prosperity Plan at its heart. Although the plan was unveiled before the US Inflation Reduction Act, it is being set out in similarly ambitious terms as the Bidenomics-style industrial policy. I think we should learn a lot from the Biden example, says Ed Miliband, the former Labour leader and shadow energy secretary who has championed the plan. In fact, the Labour plan, as currently conceived, is even more ambitious than the US IRA in relative terms. Labour's green subsidies would cost $28 billion a year against Washington's proposed $37 billion a year, even though the US has five times the population and eight times the GDP, although some estimates put the cost of the IRA's incentives much higher. The plan, as it stands, is for the $28 billion to fund the launch of a new state-run company called Great British Energy and to invest directly in renewable and nuclear projects, as well as accelerating Britain's move towards energy self-sufficiency. And they quote Rachel Reeves, who's just returned from the United States, as saying this, Biden is turning the Rust Belt into an electric vehicle belt, creating good manufacturing jobs in former industrialized heartlands and getting businesses to invest in the US. I want to see some of that action here in the UK. But the FT also warns some in Labour are getting cold feet about the plan. They write this, the plan was born in the era of 0.1% interest rates when the idea of borrowing £28 billion a year until 2030 attracted relatively little comment. Rates now stand at 4.5% and are expected to rise further. Some in Labour's team are starting to wonder whether, given the sharp rise in borrowing costs and the competing demands to spend scarce funds on public services, the plan is still affordable. Um, one influential Labour politician says this, I'm not convinced it's the best use of that money given the deadweight costs which could be spent elsewhere, for example, hospitals or schools. And the FT also write this, another question is how capital markets will react given the Labour plan could theoretically involve an extra £140 billion of debt over five years. Guilt yields spiked last autumn when the then Tory Prime Minister Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng announced huge unfunded tax cuts. Now, faced with that threat of panic from the financial markets, Labour are hoping their commitment to a fiscal rule that debt should be falling within five years should reassure um, people on those financial markets. But one quote in the FT is ominous for anyone hoping a Labour government would guarantee radical change or prioritise big change over pleasing um, those financial markets, they cite a Starmer aide as saying this, if it's a choice between the Green Prosperity Plan and the fiscal rules, the fiscal rules would trump the former. Um, we can negotiate with the climate, we can't negotiate with the financial markets. James, were you heartened or concerned by this piece in the FT? I, I, it didn't... Um didn't particularly move me either way, it has to be said. Look, there's there's a strange thing that's happened with this Labour team. Maybe it's not that strange, but the amount of scrutiny that Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer's various sort of economic announcements and plans have come under, up until really around about now, uh, has been minimal. I mean, compared to compared to the sort of the ringer that John McDonnell and any of his plans were put through, and the, the intense sort of excessive excessive, certainly minute uh, level of scrutiny that was applied by the media there. Uh, they just had a relatively easy ride, frankly, and now they're getting a little bit more attention. Now, if, if you happen to, you know, like me, you 
job is to sort of pay a bit of attention to what Labour's doing, what says it's going to do in the economy. None of this seems greatly surprising. Rachel Reeves has for, what, two years, maybe a bit more than two years, uh, laid out this very Biden-influenced economic agenda, lots and lots of references to what he's doing in the US, references to Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, and her idea of modern supply-side economics, to do a bit of jargon. Um, Big government investment, big industrial strategy, lots of focus on green investments and creating jobs by doing this. And she's been talking like this for some time. It's kind of good that the the FT has started to lay this out and and start to provide some details on it. The concerns, I think, are exactly as you start to flag. And the most obvious one is simply that, look, if Joe Biden's spending really quite a lot of money Right, uh, more than U.S. governments have spent domestically on things like industrial strategy and green investment for decades. Like it's a very significant amount of money going through the industrial, excuse me, the Inflation Reduction Act and the the Chips Act for semiconductor uh, production. Labor's yeah, on paper, yeah, there's some money there. I, I mean, the Times, the Financial Times figures seem a bit slightly off, but okay. But Labor's plans there are sitting there on paper. There's 28 billion pounds that's sort of been dangling for some period of time with not very much detail and what's going to go into it. So you get this continual noises off, and you saw it there with the like, oh, why don't we spend it on schools and hospitals? A line, by the way, I first saw from Peter Mandelson probably six months ago when he was saying, why are we spending it on this? We should spend it on these other things instead. Um, so that's being chewed away at by all the other different spending departments. And I don't think Labour's come forward with much in the way of proposals like what the £28 billion is going to go on. There's the, uh, the GB Energy is some part of it. There's the National Wealth Fund. What about the rest? They need to start detailing this so it doesn't get chewed away. The final bit is on the fiscal rules. Well, look, I can let you know a secret in these things. The way you write a fiscal rule is you work out what you want to do, and then you write a fiscal rule that allows you to do that. Now, I have to kind of hope, and we all have to kind of hope, that the Shadow Treasury team has, in fact, taken that process rather than as is being suggested here, which is that they'll make this announcement and then say, oh dear, it doesn't fit our fiscal rule and therefore we can't do it. Write a fiscal rule so that you can do what you want. Don't mess around saying, oh dear, our fiscal rule uh, isn't going to allow us to do this, particularly as you yourself have written the fiscal rule. So there's, there's, there's some concerns in there, and it's around the commitment to spending in the first instance. And the second one is the kind of capacity of the British state to actually do this. After you know, 30, 40 years of neoliberalism, do we have the capacity in the state? Do we have civil servants? Uh, do we have civil servants with the knowledge of industry? Do we have people on hand you can go and talk to and say, this is how you're going to do this. This is where you're going to make these jobs uh, happen. It's not necessarily there. And for that to work, Labour needs lots of support in the rest of the country. It needs to go and find people like, for instance, Jamie Driscoll, who has actually been doing some parts of this uh, over in the Northeast and some of the other mayors doing similar things. You need to learn from that experience, bring it in, start to make it happen. That doesn't seem to be happening as yet. In fact, as we might discuss later, almost the exact opposite in the case of Jamie Driscoll. James, I want your thoughts on another Labour story out this week. This one's in open democracy. So this is revealed. Labour taking free staff from scandal-hit consulting firms. Um, they say the party has welcomed PricewaterhouseCoopers back to the fold, even though Rachel Reeves called for it to be broken up. And then in the piece, they write, taking staff from PwC, so PricewaterhouseCoopers, was once standard practice for Labour, which borrowed more than a million pounds worth of the firm's workforce between 2010 and 2016, according to disclosures made to the Electoral Commission. But it broke ties with PwC in 2015 after veteran Labour MP Margaret Hodge, then the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, said the company was selling tax avoidance on an industrial scale. No further PwC staff were seconded to Labour under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, but the party resumed taking donations in kind of workers from PwC 
in 2021, accepting the equivalent of £141,000 by the end of 2022, as well as £89,000 in human resources from Ernst & Young, um, which has been fined more than £4 million for accounting fraud or deficiencies since 2015. Um, James, I remember this being a, a story sort of at the start of the Corbyn years. John McDonnell kicked out um, lots of people seconded from the private sector, from the shadow treasury team. Um, how big a deal is it that these people are being invited back? It's a sort of a return to normality approach that they're taking here. It's, um, I mean, look, there's a quote from Andrew Fisher, who is uh, Jeremy Corbyn's um, head of policy, uh, in the in the Open Democracy article, basically saying, look, it's, it's very tempting to do this. If you're the opposition, you get a certain amount of money from the government, this is called short money, to basically fund what you're doing in your office and employ some people to do policy and research and all the rest of it. But you're up against the government and the entire civil service, which is, what, 400,000 people. And then it's like you in a, in a not particularly nice office uh, in the parliamentary estate with like three people there. So, of course, it's tempting if suddenly, you know, PwC wanders up and says, hey, here you go, here's an intern for you to, to do a bit of work in this. But it's exactly as Andrew says, this isn't a one-way street. They're not doing it from the goodness of their heart. They're not doing it because they're firm believers in the cause of socialism or something like this. They're doing it because they want somebody on the inside. They want to know what this potential future government might be thinking. And they want, if possible, to have some influence over its policymaking process and lobby for or things that will work to the benefit of big accountancy firms and maybe not necessarily work to the benefit of all the people that Labour is supposed to represent. So no, it's, it's a bad thing. It's it's not good to do this. There would be solutions to the thing. You can go off to the trade unions. There's plenty of people in trade unions with policymaking experience and research experience. Get some of them in. That's what we did with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. You don't have to go to PwC to do it and you shouldn't be going to PwC to do this. One thing PwC can do if they're sort of in the room is try and influence the shape of policy. In Australia, um, they got into a lot of trouble because they they leaked future tax plans, I think, to some of their clients, um, obviously, to give them an advantage. So that's, I mean, they've got in a lot of trouble for that, but there, there obviously is risks in having these people in the room. Next story. The farce surrounding the blocking of Jamie Driscoll from standing as North East Mayor continues. Jamie, as you'll know, if you watched our last two shows, is the current mayor of North of Tyne. But after he appeared at an event with Ken Loach, he was excluded from the North East mayor long list. Shadow Trade Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons is the latest to go out to bat for the decision. The process uh, is ongoing. I, I think oh. that that is the, the position. I don't see, uh, there's no, that I am aware of anyway, a, appeal mechanism here. I think the decision has been made and I wish the candidates who are going forward well. What do you say when Jamie Driscoll warns that uh, it will damage the party's reputation? Well, I don't think having a really robust and stringent due diligence process damages our reputation. In fact, the opposite. I think that the process that we are now operating under Keir Starmer, it's a, a different, tougher process. The opposite is producing a set of excellent candidates. I was lucky enough to be out with many of them during the local elections. They mm. are a really but, talented group that will make a great contribution. Uh, right. Uh, do you think he's been successful in his current job? Uh, I think that as North uh, East Tyne Mayor, we've heard about the mm. achievements Jamie's put forward, but just holding one office in the Labour Party does not entitle you automatically even to if be you're, considered Even if you're quite one. good, although, you know, they think themselves to be listen, successful. Listen, I, I've, I've taken part in many selections mm. over uh, the years. There are always different considerations. And just because you have one person, could be a councillor, could be a mayor, could be any other uh, position, it doesn't automatically entail anyone to be on the long list for something else. Well, Jamie, what do you say to that? 
Well, we can hear Nick tripping over his tongue there with various weasel words. The reality is there's a pattern of shutting out candidates who oppose, you know what, they want me out because I support the policies that Keir Starmer was elected on as leader of the Labour Party. And that's what it comes down to. All right. Members should decide. Good line. They want me out because I support the policies Keir Starmer himself promised in his leadership campaign, a bunch of promises he then broke. Earlier in the day, Lisa Nandy made a similar argument to Thomas Simmons. She's speaking here to Nick Robinson on Radio 4. Why is the Labour Party not prepared to let one of its own, an existing mayor, a man called J.B. Driscoll, even be on the long list for selection to be a mayor in the wider region? Well, we have a process through which we decide who is able to go forward as Labour candidates onto a long list and a short list. The party has decided that, that certain individuals are not able to do so. But he, he's I have good enough no... to represent the people of North Tyne in the name of the Labour Party, but he's not good enough for Labour members to even have the chance to say whether they want him to be mayor of the entire region. Sounds like a, a fix, doesn't it, by the leadership? Well, I have no part in this process, and it's right that I don't. We were investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission under our previous leadership, and they found that one of the great problems that had developed in the Labour Party was that friends and factions of the leadership were able to influence decisions about disciplinary matters. Well, it's is, right that, somebody is blocking him, aren't they? Well, it's, but it's absolutely right that I and others don't get involved in decisions about who is okay. or isn't fit to stand as a Labour candidate. What I will say to you, though, Nick, is that I make absolutely no apology for saying that we've tightened up our processes and we hold all of our candidates to the highest standards, which has not always been the case in the past. If you want to represent the Labour Party, you have to meet a certain set of standards, and that is right and proper. Given Lisa Nandy's claim there that Starmer has nothing to do with selections, it was perhaps unfortunate timing that the Financial Times released this long read on the same morning she was speaking. Keir Starmer's ruthless remaking of the Labour Party. They say the opposition leader has consolidated control by taking over party machinery and sidelining the left as he bids for power. Doesn't sound particularly independent to me. And it includes this passage. In the run-up to the next general election, Starmer's allies have produced a list of unideological or centrist candidates to run for Parliament, purging those suspected of holding radical left views as they seek to combine the hard left to what Mandelson once called a, quote, sealed tomb. So, of course, Lisa Nandy, all of these people have been sent out onto the television to say it's just about quality, just about competence, nothing to do with politics. And then you've got all of these sources telling the Financial Times that, of course, it's about politics, which, I mean, everyone can see, right? The BBC angle of this story is also an interesting one. We have an update on it. So on yesterday's show, we played this clip of Victoria Derbyshire grilling Jamie Driscoll on Newsnight. No one's entitled to this candidature. And if there are better candidates, then those are the ones that the members in the North East will select to do this job. You know, if I was offered an opportunity to stand on a platform with Ken Loach, I wouldn't chat to him about movies. I would challenge him on some of the odious and repulsive things he has said. Did you do that, over Jamie Driscoll? the last 25 years. Did I talk to... Yeah, I was talking to Ken Loach about film. No, 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 no. A... Did you challenge him on some of his views? No, again, I reject the premise of this. You don't turn up to a cultural event and then start talking about something you weren't invited to talk about. Why not? I... Why not? Why didn't you challenge Ken Loach? Well, as we showed you um, on, on yesterday's show, the BBC themselves don't seem to think it's appropriate or relevant to challenge Ken Loach on whatever it is we're supposed to be upset about him with, um, because we showed you the first part of a BBC North East segment on Ken Loach in 
can, as I say, release the same day as that Newsnight interview. And the BBC journalist didn't challenge the director. In fact, it was an incredibly positive segment from start to finish, talking about how accomplished he was and how he was putting the northeast of England on the map through his films. Well, they've now released part two. It's all very familiar territory for Ken Loach and his filmmaking comrades, producer Rebecca O'Brien and screenwriter Paul Laverty. After all, this is the 15th film he's shown at Cannes, more than any other director in the festival's history. And with that, the spectacle of the red carpet's over and it's now time to share their film with the world. What a response, a 15-minute standing ovation from more than 2,000 people. You never know how it's going to play, and there's something quite spectacular, you know, kind of sensing an, an audience in such, in such a, a, such a beautiful place. It was, I think there were quite emotional feelings in the room. Couldn't have been better, really, to be honest. I can't believe the crowds at Cannes gave him a 15-minute standing ovation without challenging him. James, is Cannes full of a bunch of anti-Semites who should be nowhere near any kind of political party ever? Or indeed the, the, the BBC doing, doing a feature on, on Ken Loach, or I've seen him interviewed on you know, BBC uh, North East. It's, the, the situation here is, is pretty farcical in terms of what the party is trying to claim and about the standards that are supposedly being set. And actually, look, I'm, I'm personally I'm a, a big fan of, of Jamie Driscoll. I think people should be uh, big fans of Jamie Driscoll. I think he's done a, a really exceptional job with the actually pretty limited resources that some of these metro mayors have and made things happen that any, you'd have thought, Labour supporter, Labour MP, Labour politician would say, this is all good and these are things that you know, metro mayors in different parts of the country uh, should be doing. And you can see the respect he's won uh, from across the political spectrum. I mean, it's quite, okay, look, there's a bunch of Tories who have their own reasons for intervening in this, shall we say. But nonetheless, Nadine Sahawi, Simon Clark, both popping up to say, you know, this is someone that we've worked with and we, that we respect. This is hardly, you know, into this world of, what, some swivel-eyed momentum monster or whatever, you know, sort of illusory thing that some people want to conjure up, this monster in the Northeast. It's not true at all. He's a good, effective mayor that Labour Party members in the Northeast should be allowed to vote for to be their, their candidate. And the, the way he's been sort of excluded from this, I think, is particularly uh, farcical. The idea that you have a robust process that also doesn't have any right of appeal when it looks like something has gone wrong, and here it looks like something has gone wrong, this isn't a robust process. You need to have uh, the appeals built in there. It, the whole thing, you know, really stinks, exactly as you said, of something that looks horribly like a stitch-up. And of course, the Financial Times uh, yesterday making some of this uh, rather clear about what was going on. One other just little thing in that, the idea that you're going to be an unideological politician, I'm sorry, I mean, is, is there any more ideological claim than this centrist thing of saying that everybody else has an ideology, I float serenely above it, I care only about the facts, it's absolute nonsense. The idea that you have an, a non-ideological politician, I'm sorry, is just almost embarrassing in terms of how somebody might try and think about politics in this way. And of course, it's an intensely ideological claim to make about the world. We have an incredibly important story to get on to. Tucker Carlson is back on air after suddenly leaving Fox News. The former primetime host has now launched the first episode of his new Twitter-based show. It was just 10 minutes long, but in that time, Carlson managed to take on Ukraine, what really happened with 9-11, and who killed JFK. And um, what was the theme? As you can potentially guess, the mainstream media are there to deceive American citizens who Carlson described as, quote, the least informed in the world. 
and the audience loved it. Less than 24 hours after its release, the show had been viewed more than 75 million times. That is an impressive figure. There was one claim of Carlson's, though, that particularly caught our attention. In journalism, curiosity is the gravest crime. Yesterday, for example, a former Air Force officer who worked for years in military intelligence came forward as a whistleblower to reveal that the U.S. government has physical evidence of crashed non-human-made aircraft, as well as the bodies of the pilots who flew those aircraft. The Pentagon has spent decades studying these otherworldly remains in order to build more technologically advanced weapons systems. Okay, that's what the former intel officer revealed, and it was clear he was telling the truth. In other words, UFOs are actually real, and apparently so is extraterrestrial life. Now we know. In a normal country, this news would qualify as a bombshell, the story of the millennium. But in our country, it doesn't. The whistleblower's account ran on a technology website called The Debrief, which you've probably never heard of. The Washington Post had that story, but decided not to run it. The New York Times, meanwhile, just pretended it never happened. On the front page of the New York Times website this morning, there were five stories about Ukraine, as well as four stories apiece about Donald Trump, trans people, and climate change, the usual lineup. There was nothing at all about how an alien species is flying hypersonic aircraft over our cities. So he was, uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't qualify himself very much. So it was very clear. He says, it was clear the whistleblower was telling the truth. He says, UFOs are actually real. And he says, now we know. Now we know there are aliens uh, using hypersonic missiles or flying in hypersonic spaceships over us. Um, and the Americans keeping it secret. Um, is he correct? Do we now know? Well, let's take a look at the evidence. So this is the story Carlson is referring to. It's largely based on the testimony of a single whistleblower from within the U.S. intelligence community. Um, David Charles Grush was an intelligence officer for over 14 years. Um, and he was involved in the Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Task Force between 2019 and 2022. Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAP, is the new term for UFOs. And that task force was a secret until 2020. Grush has now handed a dossier of confidential documents to the US Congress. And according to him, the files show that deeply covert US programs, quote, possess retrieved intact and partially intact craft of non-human origin. Grush has also appeared on US channel News Nation, where he went into some detail about how he came to have this information. The UAP task force was refused access to um, a broad crash retrieval program. When you say crash retrieval, what do you mean? Uh, these are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft if you will, non-human, exotic origin, vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft from another species. We do, yeah. How many? Quite a number. You're kidding. No. I thought it was totally nuts, and I thought at first I was being deceived. It was a ruse. People started confiding in me. They approached me. I have plenty of current and former senior intelligence officers that came to me, many of which I knew almost my whole career, that confided in me they were a part of a program, they named the program. I've never heard of it. And they, they told me, based on their oral testimony, um, and they provided me documents and other, other proof, that there was, in fact, a program that the UAP task force was uh, not read into. 
So Grush doesn't claim to have seen any of these crafts himself. And according to the debrief article, his account is based on, quote, extensive interviews with high-level intelligence officials. So that doesn't sound exactly um, like an open and shut case. I wouldn't quite say we know. Um, nonetheless, he was prepared to offer up a little more detail in that interview. You are saying to the human race, for the first time, an official intelligence representative at a high level from the US government is saying publicly, we are not alone. We're definitely not alone. Absolutely, the data points empirically that we're not alone, yeah. Do we have bodies? Do we have species of Well, naturally, um, when you recover something that's either landed or crashed, um, sometimes you encounter um, dead pilots. And uh, believe it or not, as as fantastical as that sounds, it's true. I've got to be blunt about this. Yeah. You're not making this up. This no. is not a lie. No, absolutely not. Because everybody watching this right now is looking at your face. Mm-hmm. They're going, is this guy for real? I am for real. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here at great personal risk and obvious professional risk by talking to you today. I mean, that is obvious professional risk if you want to yeah, the pilots are sometimes there. Remember, he's saying he hasn't seen this. This is just other people telling him. Um, according to Grush, he's faced retaliation from the US government since going public. So is the guy reliable? The debrief article gives a number of other quotes from intelligence and military officials, all vouching for him. And he isn't the only insider to come forward saying that aliens are real and that we know about them. Jonathan Gray is an intelligence officer working in the National Air and Space Intelligence Center. He told the debrief this, The existence of complex historical programs involving the coordinated retrieval and study of exotic materials dating back to the early 20th century should no longer remain a secret. The majority of retrieved foreign exotic materials have a prosaic terrestrial explanation and origin, but not all. And any number higher than zero in this category represents an undeniably significant statistical percentage. The non-human intelligence phenomenon is real. We are not alone. Retrievals of this kind are not limited to the United States. This is a global phenomenon, and yet a global solution continues to elude us. Grusha's account is just the latest in a series of revelations about UAPs or UFOs. In 2020, a New York Times article penned by the same journalists who wrote the debrief story confirmed the existence of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Pentagon officials still refuse to discuss the program. And before that 2020 revelation, back in 2017, the New York Times and the Washington Post revealed this footage, apparently showing encounters between Navy jets and UAPs. Dude, there's a fucking drone on, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, thank you. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not. It is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. Oh my gosh, dude. Wow, look at 
Just last week, NASA held its first ever public meeting to discuss what information they have on UAPs. That's where they released this footage. This is an example of one that I showed at the hearing recently. Uh, this is a spherical orb, metallic, in the Middle East, 2022, by an MQ-9. I will come back to the sensor question that David raised here in a moment. This is a typical example of the thing that we see most of. We see these all over the world, and we see these in, in making very interesting apparent maneuvers. James, I feel like we're potentially both a little bit out of our you know, areas of expertise here. But what's your take? Do, we, do you buy this idea that the Americans might have found alien life, crashed, which, you know, which crashed into the earth and then kept it a secret because they wanted to use the technology for, for weapons? I think, I mean, that's a hell of a question. I think we're both, I mean, I'm certainly quite a long way out of what I would consider my area of expertise in this. But broadly speaking, no, I don't think the US is uh, secretly hiding evidence of crashed alien spaceships. Um, the, the guy doing the whistleblower here, I mean, presumably he's sincere about what he's heard. But big organizations, particularly big secretive organizations where people actually have quite a premium and not really talking to each other and hiding what they're doing, which is what the US you know, intelligence establishments looks like. Like they generate rumors, they generate people talking about stuff, and you can collate all of these things, write it all down, and suddenly you can look like you've got a story. He hasn't seen these things himself; it's all based in sort of hearsay. So that, that's where we are with that. Um, I thought Phil Burton Cartlidge, uh, who writes a very good blog called uh, "All That Is Solid," uh, had a decent take in this, which is like, well, look, whatever the sort of truth by about these kind of stories bubbling up and the way they function in practice, they tend to act as something of a distraction. Uh, from a whole bunch of other things that we could be talking about, that, that we end up sort of saying, oh, well, there's a grand conspiracy that's secretly plotting away to make the world look different to how it is, rather than seeing the things that are right in front of our faces, like you know, rising price of food and profiteering by food companies and some practical, obvious things that are there in our day-to-day -day lives that you can see and that you can see who's responsible for it and this is what we need to go and think about. Instead, you've got this sort of Frankly, it looks like a bit of a distraction where you start of say, okay, the US is hiding alien space technology uh, uh, somewhere in Area 51 or, or wherever these places are. It just doesn't seem very likely. And I think we have to be a bit careful around some of these sort of conspiracy theory uh, end of things. You'll be pleased to know we're, not, we're probably not going to devote too many of our shows to extraterrestrial life and, and keep to the, the more terrestrial problems you speak to there. Um, because we don't talk about it very often, though, let's entertain this for a little while. Um, what would the Americans do if they if if there was alien life? Because I mean, the fact they have these programs and they are secret, which is interesting in and of itself, right? It doesn't the fact that there was a secret Pentagon program which they weren't going public about about UFOs doesn't mean there were UFOs and they were covering it up. But it does suggest that you know were they to find unidentified flying objects, whatever we call them now, unidentified extraterrestrial blah, 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 whatever, whatever they call it. Um, they probably do want to know first and they probably want to do a lot of research before they tell anyone else, right? So, so potentially we should, as a society, think about what would we want to do were something to, to land here? Do, do we trust this secret Pentagon department to, to sort it all out? Because there probably are aliens out there, right? I mean, the, the universe is big enough. I would imagine there probably are. 
Uh, not necessarily. I mean, this is this is uh, this is the old Fermi paradox, isn't it? That that look, if the universe is so big and it is really big, uh, then you'd expect there to be lots and lots of life out there. You'd expect the place to be teeming. You know, there's billions of stars, right? At least some of those have planets around them that could support life, uh, and therefore we should already have seen evidence of aliens because it's a really big universe. So you should already have seen it, and yet we we find nothing. So it's really quite eerie. That there's so little evidence. This is the Fermi paradox. There's so little evidence of, of uh, extraterrestrial life out there. Now, what we're dealing with with the U.S. military and the intelligence establishment, frankly, yes, they do. Of course, they have a, a a unit to investigate unidentified flying objects or whatever they're now calling it. By the way, they, they changed the name to get away from the little green men sort of uh, association of UFOs. But actually, what they're concerned about is things like the Chinese weather balloon from a few months back. You know, that other countries out there are developing technology technologies that they want to keep an eye on. And that's why this takes this military edge. It's not really the visitors from the other world that should worry us. It's the fact that we live in a system where you have very large, very powerful countries that bump into each other, that compete with each other. And that competition takes a military form. And that's what you're seeing here. That's why the US military takes an interest in this stuff, more so than any concern that they have about you know visitors from, from the stars or whatever it might be. Unidentified anomalous phenomena, so the UAP is the new UFO, unidentified anomalous phenomena. I suppose that's, yeah, because it, it's not necessarily going to be a flying object. It could be anything. Um, I suppose, I'm thinking, I, I don't think about UFOs enough on this show, but I suppose the issue is the universe is so big, but also time is so long that it would be a bit coincidental if we were around for the particular moment that the aliens came here. We're going to finish this show with this ridiculous moment that occurred on the GB News breakfast show um, this week. On the bitch. <laughs> if only they knew. If only they knew. Pussycat me. Oh, no, how the fuck did you get home today? Oh. Talk back. Climate change is making turbulence on planes worse. That's according to Paul Williams. He's a professor of atmospheric science. You sure we're on air? We are. Be nice if somebody spoke to us. I think our batteries won't Thank change. You. Thank you very much indeed. There's Simon Calder. <laughs> James, have you ever had an embarrassing live mic moment? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there's, there's the first time for everything. There's exceptional production values there. I think Navarro manages to, to trump that on a, on a fairly regular basis and with like a fraction of the budget. Or I say it would never happen on Navarro and then people shared a bunch of times where our mics were live before we knew. Although, luckily, I don't think we... Well, I mean, we're an atmosphere on the show anyway, but I don't think we, sh we, we, we said anything that was too controversial when our mics were live. Um, you know, we show you who we are on the show, you know? This is us all the time. Um, James Meadway, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Tomorrow, I won't be back. I'm uh, taking tomorrow off. Um, four shows this week. Um, but we will be here from 6pm. Of course, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.